Amen. I wonder today how many of us, or how many among us, have had their understanding, have had our understanding of grace shaped by the circumstances of life, in particular damaged by the circumstances of life. I'm suspecting that most of us here have been touched in some way by difficult circumstances that have deformed our understanding of grace. Maybe it isn't so hard for you to imagine spending time on the sidelines spiritually because of what God did or didn't do, what you think God should have done or could have done but didn't, what you had to live through that you know God could have changed or rearranged but didn't, what he seemed to withhold from you that you really felt you needed or should have had. And so for many of us, if not most of us, we fight against those circumstances, those realities of our lives, over against the magnanimous and amazing grace of God. And it is expected of us that we would be agents of God's grace, the fullness of His grace. And then we encounter a man like Jonah, a prophet of God. How do we begin to process the man who sits down and hopes that God won't be gracious to people? How do we come to terms with that kind of hurt, that kind of bitterness, that kind of disappointment, that kind of anger? The backstory, of course, is that Nineveh is a bully nation. They'd been sponsoring terrorism in the world for several centuries. And in, often Israel, or the Jews, were the brunt of that terrorism. Nineveh was, or, or Jonah was not immune to the emotions of what it was like to be the target of terrorism. And then expected by God to be gracious and magnanimous and kind and ministerial to the people who had hurt him, hurt his people, hurt his ancestors. And God let it happen. So this morning, I want to talk about being angry with God. We probably wouldn't stand up and give a testimony right now about the fact that we're angry with him. But there's a good possibility that among us there are those who are right now angry with God or at the very least disappointed with him. So when God's ways disturb our sensitivities, sometimes we run, sometimes we hide, sometimes we get disappointed. And sometimes we get downright angry with God. So maybe that's where you are this morning. And that's a really 
horrible place to be. And you already know that. But it happens. And so I want you to open up your Bibles this morning as we conclude this study in the book of Jonah to Jonah chapter 4, if you would. I don't think anger can be described in more graphic terms than it is in the first verse of chapter 4. And English doesn't do it justice. I might take a shot at Hebrew for a second. Just because the first verse sounds the way Jonah feels, and Hebrew can bring it out. It says, Ra'ah, Ra'ah, Chara. Does that sound nice? Lynn hates when I say Hebrew. She especially hates the stuff. Must you be so Hebrew when you speak Hebrew? That's what the first verse unfurls for us. There's no way to describe anger greater than it is here. Jonah is absolutely infuriated. Okay? That's the setting. And there are some things that he needs to overcome and we need to overcome. If we're going to be usable by God as agents of grace. Uh, We've sung about it this morning already, about the greatness and expanse of the grace of God. You know about it. You yourself have experienced the grace of God in salvation. You know of God's undeserved favor toward you. And we also know that we are expected to be marketers, middlemen, agents of God's grace to other people. We know that. But sometimes our emotions get in the way, as they have in this case. So what are we to do? Well, let's look at the text. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. That doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound like much, does it? Does that sound like the Hebrew? No, it doesn't. We can almost pass that by. He prayed to the Lord. Quite a transition. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? Have you ever complained to God in prayer? Your prayers, are they complaining, whining? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is now the second time that Jonah's expressed a death wish. Just kill me, God. He said, throw me overboard. I'd like to die. And he's going in this misery. Just die. This goes into prayer with God, whines to God, and says, I just want to die. Now, I'm pretty certain there's some people who've prayed that in here, too. You're probably glad today that God didn't answer that prayer the way you asked for it. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm 
which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. And I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Wow. Well, let's look at this. The first um, hurdle that needs to be overcome in a world where God's ways are not our ways is this, our hidden sense that we really deserve God's favor, or at least we deserve better when compared to others. Now, as you were looking at this text over again, did you wonder why Jonah went out and sat down on the uh, hill somewhere on the east side of the city and just watched? I was thinking about that, you know, because as he went into the city and preached, we know that, that there was repentance. They, they turned to God. I mean, the deal is done. Everybody's saved. What is he doing sitting out on the east side of the city on a hill waiting to see, it says, what will happen to the city? I think I know. I think you know too. He went out to sit on the east side on a hill to look at the city to wait and see if Nineveh really meant what they said. I think he went out there to sit and look and say, there's no way that these people are genuine. There is no possible way that they have really, truly, honestly repented and are going to change their ways. And so I'm going to sit out here for 40 days and watch because they'll never stay righteous that long. They've been so wicked for so long. There's no way. And as he's out there, he has a conversation with God. He's complaining about the conversion. In the back of his mind, he's hoping they're going to turn back so God is going to nuke them. But in the meantime, he's going to get his words out to God. I knew this would happen, he says. I knew, I knew, because you know what? I, I knew what kind of a God you are. You know, people say, well, maybe Jonah didn't really know God. Well, yeah, he knew God. I knew what kind of a God you were. I knew you're soft and mushy. I knew that you, 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 you'd relent from the calamity. I knew that you wouldn't punish these people the way they rightly deserve to be punished. Because they don't really deserve your grace. I deserve it, but you, they don't deserve it. They'll be back to the nasty in no time. You just wait and see, God. They're opportunists. They, uh, they're, they're marketeers. They heard a good deal. Uh, you made them an offer that was too good to refuse. And so they took it. But they're not going to keep this up. 
Your grace game, by the way, Lord, is putting the rest of us at risk. Because these are really bad people. And they're going to go back to their bad ways. And regularly, we ask ourselves when we're looking around at evil, wicked people, why doesn't God just come down hard on wickedness and be done with it? And sometimes we couch it in words like, I cannot believe that God stands by and lets harm come to little children when we hear horrible things that happen around the world. And what we're really saying is, I can't believe that, that God would allow evil things to continue to exist. You ever wondered about that? You ever thought about that? Why doesn't God just put an end to it? Peter, uh, one of the disciples, had an incredible insight into the reality of God and evil and how it all functions when he said, God is not slow as some men count slowness in terms of judgment or justice or all of that. But rather, our God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to faith in him. If God arbitrarily, somewhere along the journey of humanity, had decided that he's going to put an end to all evil and wickedness, he would put an end to you and to me. We would have never had the opportunity for salvation. Because at that instant of evil and wickedness, God puts an end to it. One of the hard things that we have to come to terms with, but one of the grand things in, in light of our own salvation, is that, that God is patient with wickedness and evil and wicked and evil people because he longs to have the opportunity to turn their hearts toward him. And if that wasn't the kind of God he, were, he was, none of us would have salvation today nor the generations yet to be born should he tarry. We struggle with compassion, especially seeing someone clearly undeserving getting favor. But the reason that evil endures in this age is because of God's great patience to bring salvation to more evil people. And he's willing to risk the casualties along the way. And I thank God that he is. He is not slow in justice and judgment. He is merciful. Well, there's another hurdle that Jonah had to overcome, as I see it here, and that is, and we do as well, is our preference for vindication over reconciliation. We've probably all heard that term, I don't get mad, I just get even. Well, Jonah turned it around. He gets mad and he wants to get even. Jonah's the quintessential angry guy. Assyria, as we all know, was a sponsor of terrorism. And I can tell you that the graced man or the graced woman who doesn't appreciate the grace of God in their own life can almost be more dangerous and deadly than a terrorist. Terrorists and wicked and evil people are supposed to be mean and nasty. But people who have experienced the grace of God, well, we're supposed to be the epitome of grace. 
We're supposed to be, of all the people in the world, people described as, my, they are gracious people. So how would your coworkers describe you? How would your neighbors describe you? How would your children describe you? How do your relatives describe you? Oh, man or woman of God. Do they say, well, one thing for sure about them, they are people who are amazingly full of grace. They are so gracious. I hope so. I haven't noticed so. Sometimes we struggle with the concept of grace as our lives, as I said, our circumstances unfold because we, we seem to think grace is so arbitrary and unfair. Let's make sure we describe grace properly. It's the undeserved favor of God. We look at it and we say it's, it's arbitrary, it's unfair. God chooses to grace this person and not grace that person. And grace to that person just isn't fair. Grace to me, well, you know, maybe that's fair. And so we get completely discombobulated about this whole idea of grace. It's, it just doesn't seem to work in our minds. Let, let's understand something about grace and the requirements of God. And about the description of God as being soft or lacking in justice or, 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 or whatever. Let's understand that the requirements to be in good space with God are 100% perfection. Let's never miss the point when we're thinking about arbitrary and fair. In order to be right with God, you must be 100% perfect. This is not new to you, but sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that reality. 100% perfect. How in the world could that ever happen unless God had invented this most amazing thing called grace? Because none of us, no matter how good we ever were or how good we possibly could be, could ever be 100% perfect. And so we require the grace of God, the undeserved favor. He looks at us and says, you're not 100% perfect. You couldn't be 100% perfect. But I will make you 100% perfect by the death, burial, and resurrection of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was 100% perfect, who is 100% perfect, and I will grace you. I will cause to fall on you my undeserved favor that will enable you to be viewed by me as 100% perfect because of Christ. So in terms of unfair, doesn't begin to cut it. Doesn't begin to describe the issue. The issue is simply this. Without grace, no one could ever be saved or placed in the presence of God. Arbitrary? Well, God gave Jonah and us an object lesson by using a vine, a worm, and some hot wind. He grows the vine... It says here in verse 6 that 
God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about that. God made the vine to grow to shade the prophet with a bad attitude, not because he deserved it, but because he needed it. And that's the way God functions here. And he gives a great description to Jonah. He goes on to say to him, why, when, when he's angry again, he says, um, verse 10, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. I, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. Jonah, you had nothing to do with this vine. You, you, didn't, you didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't even think about it. You didn't even think about the fact that this would be an I- ideal idea to, to, to shade your, you. You didn't think about any of that. It was all my doing. I did all of that. And I did all of that because you needed it. And, and Jonah, you have no idea about my creation. You've had nothing to do with it. You haven't tended it. You haven't grown it. You haven't caused it to grow. You didn't plant it. But everything in the universe is mine. I caused it to be. I grew it. I tended it. I've been watching over the Assyrians. In spite of their wickedness and evil, I'm the one who caused them to breathe every breath they've been breathing. I'm the one who caused their women to be fertile and give birth to babies. I'm the one. There's nothing arbitrary about me. And I am the one who chooses, because all of the universe belongs to me, to choose to give to them my undeserved favor because they need it. According to my purposes. The Apostle Paul, when the Roman Christians were having a struggle with this concept, said, the Lord God will be compassionate on who he will be compassionate, and he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Not arbitrarily. Paul goes on to say, because they are purposed in God, Romans 9, 16. For my grand purposes, to display my power and glory. Jonah, I, I, I wanted you to go and preach this sermon not so that you could become the greatest evangelist of all time, not, not so that you could experience a, a, a real exciting day in your life when, when your message was responded to. I did all of this because I wanted to display to the universe my great glory and ability to turn evil, wicked people's hearts around. Not arbitrarily. Purposely. What we have to come to terms with is that God is as concerned about people's misery as he is angry at their evil. God cares. And so he says to Jonah, is your, do, you, do you have a reason to be angry? Have you any right to be angry? You know, really he's asking a moral question here. He's really saying to Jonah, is your anger right You know, Jonah keeps thinking that he's, you have to keep following along and recognize here, uh, almost every verse of this story, Jonah is holding himself up as, I'm better than the Ninevites. I'm better than them. I deserve better than them. 
I've served you. You know, we, we've, we've heard these stories. I've served you my life. I'm better than those people who, who have turned their back on you all these years. And so he's angry, really violently angry toward God. And God just, you know, as, as he does, and I'm sure you face this with God, he just turns around and asks the question, oh, um, and is your anger right? Are, are you such a good guy, Jonah? Is your anger morally right? Are, are you being angry, Jonah, and not sinning? Why don't I just blot you off the face of the earth, Jonah? By the standards with which you want to treat Nineveh, I should be wiping you out. God is slow to anger. The contrast is obvious. And Jonah is fast to be angry. And so are we. Grace, grace is neither deserved nor arbitrary. It's purposeful. And it's the only way we could ever be saved. There's a third thing I notice here, and that is this, that our we, we need to overcome our concern about things rather than people. I'm sure it hasn't escaped you as you've been studying this story, the uh, incredible number of ironies in this story. Jonah's refusal to be gracious while he depends on the grace of God for everything. Have you noticed? The text is specific on making note of certain things in the descriptions. God provides a fish to save him. That's grace. As we're reading along, it says here that Jonah himself made a shelter. <laughs> this is fascinating, a little bit hidden irony, but a fascinating thing. A sukkah. Any of you out here ever heard of the Feast of Booths? You've heard of that. You know what the Feast of Booths is all about? It's the um, celebration that was expected of good people of Israel to thank the Lord for his provision of grace when he rescued them out of the exodus. Booths, the Feast of Booths, when they made shelters... It was a symbolic reminder to them of the amazing grace of God. And so here you've got Jonah, the sulking prophet, makes himself a sukkah to sit in a booth that would be the symbol of God's grace while he folds his arms in disgust, hoping God won't be gracious. Oozing with irony. But that's not enough. God provides, it says in the text, a vine. Grace words. Jonah doesn't want to be gracious, but he's thriving and living on the grace of God. Because, get this, Jonah's handiwork, his own booth, wasn't adequate enough to keep him shaded. Then God provides a worm. And a scorching east wind. You're saying, hey, wait a second, I'm not seeing the grace here. Jonah so desperately needed that worm and that hot east wind, but didn't know it. Because while he was sitting in his little comfortable booth, basking in the grace of God, the symbol of God's grace, 
enjoying the shade that he didn't plant, tend to, or grow. Angry at God, no longer talking to God, uh, off speaking terms. Sitting on the side of a mountain, hoping that people who had turned to the Lord God would turn back to their wickedness. He needed a worm. He needed that vine to come down. He needed that hot, scorching east wind so that God could tap him on the shoulder and say, Hey, Jonah! How's it going now? As I move away and pull my grace back a little from you. Let's talk. I think we need to talk again. Is your anger good? Oh yeah, my anger's fine. I'm really angry about the death of this vine. This is the same Jonah pouting in the context of this story who extols to all of us the amazing characteristics of a God who guarantees Jonah's rich future and yours and mine too. He gives this great description that is, that is uh, repeated seven times in the Old Testament of God. God is gracious. He intervenes for care alone. That's who God is, just because we need it. He's compassionate, soft like a mother's womb. He's slow to anger. He's patient and postpones his anger. He's abounding in love, relentless love, the, the kind of said love, that... that um, Loving kindness, the everlasting loving kindness of God that, that, that doesn't go away, that guarantees a repentant sinner the love of God. Yes, Jonah, I'm afraid that by your very admission, by your very sermon of how you've described God, he is absolutely going to love those who've turned to him in Nineveh. Those people who you can't stand. Yes, Jonah... Because of the characteristics of God. And he relents from sending calamity. Do we realize in describing our God and knowing who our God is, he absolutely agonizes over the sinful? He agonizes over the sinful the way a spurned parent does for a lost child. Never miss this. God is not sitting in heaven rubbing his hands delightfully with glee looking at the vast majority of wickedness and evil on the earth and saying I can't wait for judgment day that's not God God looks over the world and agonizes like a parent whose child has gone wayward there isn't a parent in this room who can't wait for judgment day for, for their wayward child no. No, God's heart that Jonah didn't seem to really, he could mouth about God's heart. But he didn't possess God's heart. And so the sulking prophet in the sukkah, the symbol of God's grace, hopes God won't be gracious to others. And as a prophet... He is violating 
the covenant that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, whereby God said, through your seed, all nations will be blessed, including the Assyrians. We're going to meet Assyrians in heaven someday. Some of these people who came to faith in God were loved by him, were rescued by him, in spite of the prophet, because our God is relentless to reach people with a message of truth. And that's why we need to overcome in our lives our preference to be exclusive rather than inclusive. Jonah, like too many, only cares about what he can directly, what can directly benefit him. That's the kind of relationship it seems that he had with God. It was a contract love he had with God. God, I'll love you as long as everything goes the way I want it to go. As long as you give me all the things I want you to give me. But I don't love you enough to love the things that you love, God. Oh, I hope we're past that. I hope we're all farther along than that. That we just love God for the good things that he gives to us. But I'm not going to love you enough, Lord, to love the things that you love. We are preoccupied with good people like us. Not because they're good. But because good people tend to benefit us. God said to Jonah, Jonah, listen, what about 120,000 plus people who don't know their left hand from their right? Now, I know that some people translate that as the idea that God is talking about the children in the city of Nineveh, that there are, in fact, 120,000 tiny little children who have not grown up yet to even know their left hand from the right. And often that's a description in the Old Testament to describe children, but I don't think it is in this case. I believe that God is saying to Jonah, these people, in terms of morality, in terms of understanding right and wrong, are like infants. Jonah, do you not have a heart to see that, that these people have been raised in a culture of sin? They don't know of the great God of heaven. They don't know of my mercy. They don't know of my grace. They don't know of my salvation. They only know of sin and wickedness and evil, and they themselves are conscious of it. The reason they turned so quickly when the message of the gospel came to them is they were sick of their lives. They were sick of having all the bloodshed and, and merciless treatment of each other and how it was working and their families were disasters. They were sick of it. But they didn't know how to get out of it. This is all they knew. 120,000 Jonah plus people who don't know their left hand from their right. Listen, I am holding them responsible for that. But you want to rush to judgment. I want to offer them an opportunity for repentance. All Jonah could see, and frankly, sometimes all we can see, is accountability. Evil, wicked people are just accountable. We want justice, and we want it straight right now. God wants our hearts to be a broader and more expansive than that. 
God wants us to, to take the opportunity to, to consider the possibility that they're so ignorant of the realities of God that if someone were to tell them of the love of God and a different way to live, they would turn to him. We are living in a time that is completely different from our grandparents' time. We are living in a time of complete ignorance toward the Lord Jesus Christ. In our city of Oshawa, I, I mean, when God is describing our city, I think he's saying something like there are 100,000 people in that city who don't know their right hand from their left hand. Should I not be concerned about that city? Finally, I, I look at this and I wonder, what, what's really at the core of Jonah's problem? I know he thought he deserved grace and all that, but there's something more here. Why is he so angry? Why does he want to die? This doesn't make sense. I, I, I get it that, uh, you know, he he'd hated the Ninevites and Assyrians and didn't want them. He was afraid of them and all of that. I get all of that, but there's something more. There's something at the root of his life that was broken. And I think it's this. When you are that angry with God, at the very core of your life, you don't trust him. You don't trust God. I really believe that, that at the very center of Jonah's issues was his inability to trust God God for his future. He said, listen, I don't want to go back to, I don't want to go back to Israel and be the number one hated guy because I went in and was responsible for the conversion of our enemies. Because God, I can't trust you to go back to Israel. And, and God, I don't want you to save these Ninevites because I know that every one of these people whose lives are still, are, are still existing, they'll turn back to their wickedness. And they'll just come after us and, and beat us up all over again. So God, I don't trust you. So why don't you just kill me right now because I'd rather be dead than live the next number of years in what I see the future going to be because I don't trust you. If we are going to, um, if we are going to overcome... We have to get past our fixation on forming our own future rather than trusting God for it. You know, Jonah's the guy who was basically saying to God, would you let me be your point person for forming the future? And as he's forming those words in his heart, he has to come to terms with, yeah, and I'm the guy who actually disobeyed your word. I'm the guy who recklessly jeopardized all those guys in the ship. I, I'm the guy who you have to speak to one and two and three times over and over again before I might consider doing what you tell me to do. And I have no vision for mission. And I'm an angry man. 
So count me in, God, as your poster child for leading your people into the future. Over against a whole city of pagan people who hear the word of God one time and turn and obey God. The contrast is stunning. God's patience with us on the Jonah side of life. Beloved, listen. If you're angry, if you're an angry person, I'm pretty convinced that at the very root of it is you don't trust God. So give it up. You can't trust you. God is the one in charge. Trust him. Trust his grace. Trust his heart. Trust his compassion. Trust his mercy. Trust his long-suffering. Trust his willingness to relent from calamity. Trust his willingness to agonize over your waywardness. Trust him. God sees possibilities with the wicked where we only see accountability. We rush to judgment. As I was looking at this last statement, should I not be concerned about that great city? I thought that was so oozing with anticipation. When God states that, should I not be concerned about that Gadal Elohim, great city to God, in his vision, is the Lord Jesus Christ who would come and die for the cities of the world. God is saying, should I not be concerned? I'll tell you. I will tell the world how concerned I am. I am concerned all the way to the cross. How concerned is God? How much can you trust God? <laughs> he sent his only son to live and die so that you could be saved. That's how much you can trust him. Oh God, this morning, as we conclude this with this very abrupt statement from you that reaches right to the heart, God, I pray that we, your people, would allow the Holy Spirit to invade our hearts powerfully that we might truly live for you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As I concluded my study time on this amazing book, I jotted down this prayer for myself. Maybe it would be good for all of us. Lord God, I may have been damaged or yet to be damaged in life, but don't let life take away the expansiveness and wonder of grace. Don't allow trouble to make me small and steal away the greatness of a life lived on adventure with God, to become petty, to have no vision, to be angry, uncaring, or selfish. 
when all over me is undeserved favor of a great God. Our Father, that's our prayer this morning as we conclude. You've poured out your heart and life for us. You've taken away our sin. You have lavished us with undeserved favor of your love. And God, I just pray that you would cause us to be renewed as agents of grace everywhere, to everyone, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.